Hi everybody, I'm Bob Weathers. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist, our weekly show here. I want to start by thanking my two co-producers. I'm sitting with Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra. They're the masterminds behind our weekly shows. And we, we have uh, all of our previous shows are available now um, at Ask an Addiction Specialist listed where you can access them in an archive. And I recommend that you do that. Uh, we've kind of been building uh, uh, topics and uh, going more deeply into topics over the last uh, few months. I think we're uh, to our 12th or 13th episode now, so there's a lot of resource there. and I recommend you to that. Appreciate you joining me today. I want to announce something that actually uh, 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 was previewed here. Uh, I think it was about our fourth podcast, which was on self-compassion. And I've been uh, working uh, closely with, with two colleagues that are connected with iAwake Technologies as well as the Integral Recovery Institute, my two good friends, John Dupuy and Doug Prater. And uh, uh, they have co-produced with me uh, a brand new CD uh, uh, that is based on our presentation on, on uh, self-forgiveness. The title of the, the uh, CD is The Freedom of Forgiveness, and I recommend that you take a look at it. Uh, you can go to my website uh, listed at uh, www.drbobweathers.com <coughs> and uh, it'll connect you up to the iAwake site where you can take a look at it and order it. You can order it in hard copy as a CD uh, to listen to. It's a meditation based on uh, forgiveness practice and uh, it's been, that's been one of our threads or themes throughout all of our work so far. You can uh, purchase the CD or you can get it in an MP3 and download it to whatever smartphone you want to listen to it on. So I highly recommend that to you. In fact, it ties into last week's presentation, which we call the Advanced Psychology of Forgiveness, part two. And we focused last week on what to do about reconciling <coughs> healing ruptures in relationships. We've, we've dealt um, uh, in and around forgiveness and uh, 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 reconciliation uh, as being central to recovery. <clears throat> Is that uh, there's a lot of focus in, in, in uh, solid recovery on addressing resentments that we have towards others. There's a lot of focus also on making amends, how to do that, thinking of the 12-step programs. Uh, they're having uh, worked this out in great detail, having worked this personally myself. I really see the value in it. And I think it's part of the reason that we've, these, these topics keep coming up. As we've talked about, they're central to sustaining a successful recovery in terms of being able to work through both the inner uh, portion of our forgiveness work as well as the outer portion in terms of reconciliation, making amends, and so on. Uh, uh, recommend that you go back and look at, at the last few presentations that have dealt with this as well as the, the CD set that I just mentioned to you. Uh, today we're going to be focusing on the holidays and specifically the topic is unstressing for the holidays. That's my term for self-calm calm ourselves. Um, the holidays can be stressful in terms of activity. They can be stressful in terms of interaction with family and friends. Um, uh, it can be a stressful time for those that are in recovery because of uh, uh, triggers for uh, possible relapse. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot that it goes on in the holidays every year that's great fun. There's also a lot of stress with it. In fact, the, the, uh, 
the big name in stress research in the early days was Hans Selye, a Canadian psychologist, and he talked about positive stress as much as negative stress. Even pleasurable uh, events like a holiday get-together, which can be primarily positive, uh, can be stressful. And so today we're going to be uh, uh, not only talking about, but actually practicing an exercise in uh, how we can calm ourselves, and I'm calling that unstressing. The last few presentations have been around forgiveness and reconciliation and relationship, and they focus on one side of one one half of the coin, which is what I call co-regulation. Uh, co-regulation is how we help to regulate one another in relationship, and today's focus will be primarily on self-regulation, the flip side of the coin. So uh, I, I believe these two are in constant interaction with one another. There's a lot of focus in various recovery programs on learning how to manage my stress, learning how to manage anger, learning how to manage craving, uh, and that would fall under the umbrella of self-regulation. Uh, so much of our focus here, we've actually talked about it in terms of understanding recovery as a plural phenomenon, that it, that it really requires co-regulation, whether that's with a, a skilled professional or family members and friends that can be of support in our, in our recovery process. And uh, the two go hand in hand as far as I can see. But today we're going to focus on self-regulation, specifically the role of unstressing in recovery. I'll be basing the next uh, 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 few exercises and comments on, on uh, work that I've done with Dr. Stanley Block. He uh, lives up in Washington, has been affiliated with the University of Utah, and uh, is the author of this book, The Mind-Body Workbook for Addiction. I recommend this book to you as a resource. You can find it on Amazon, for example. Um, it's a very useful book in terms of practically applying means of managing our stress as a way to protect our sobriety and enhance our recovery. And so uh, this has been a, a real resource. Dr. Block collaborated with another dear friend of mine, Guy Duplessis. Guy lives in Cape Town, South Africa. It's quite a world, isn't it, that we can communicate between Washington, Southern California, and uh, Cape Town, and uh, the, the book came as, a, as, as the fruit of Guy's and Stanley's collaboration. They asked me to write the foreword in, in it, and I was honored to do so, because I think it's a really helpful book, both in terms of managing our stress physically, which we'll be talking about today in terms of self-calming, as well as managing our recovery uh, cognitively and emotionally. It's a really useful book, kind of combines equal parts mindfulness which we'll be looking at today, as well as cognitive behavioral strategies for uh, building a really solid, effective, long-term recovery. What I'd like to do, rather than talk about uh, mindfulness or talk about meditation or talk about calming ourselves, I'd like to invite you to join me now for uh, uh, two consecutive exercises. They'll just be one, uh, we'll just go all the way through it together, and it'll take about seven and a half minutes for us to go through this exercise. I'm going to talk you through this, and I'm going to join you in it as I'm uh, providing instructions. We'll be doing two things over the next uh, several minutes. One is a basic mindfulness of the breath exercise, 
and it's a very simple way to calm ourselves um, uh, in, in, in a moment of stress. It's also an effective strategy for beginning to build in um, a more uh, kind of uh, steady state of, of calm in one's life. Uh, practice regularly, one can actually lower one's stress level um, more habitually by, by, uh, by this practice. So we'll be coupling mindfulness of the breath We'll do that for two or three minutes, and then we'll complete by complete the exercise by doing sensory awareness practice, and that's really focusing on our five senses. And I'll I'll guide us through these exercises. Um, I've adapted these exercises from my work in refuge recovery. I recommend uh, for if you want to do more reading, Noah Levine's book. Uh, is on refuge recovery has exercises very close to this in the back of the book. I also recommend, as I mentioned earlier, Stan Block's book, uh, Stan and Guy's book, uh, Mind Body Workbook for Addiction, because they have exercises that are very much uh, parallel to what I'll be taking you through. So, uh, will you join me now? Um, it, it'll, it'll work best if you're uninterrupted for the next several minutes. Um, uh, I'm going to uh, advocate that you close your eyes just to reduce distraction. I'll actually be doing that myself for the same reason. It uh, helps me to focus in on my breath as well as my senses just to close my eyes. So I invite you to get comfortable in a, in a chair or if you're lying down, either way. And um, uh, close your eyes. And here we go. I want to ask you first of all to take a deep breath. Breathing in and hold that and then release when you're ready. We're going to focus for the next few minutes just on the sensations around our breath. Another deep breath in. Hold that and then release. On the next breath in, see if you can notice the sensations, particularly down in your, your stomach area as your belly rises with the in-breath and falls with the out-breath. So breathing in, rising. Breathing out, falling. Do that again. Breathing in. Breathing out. Now it's not uncommon in, the, in, in this exercise to have thoughts arise. Uh, they can be memories, uh, worries about the future. Um, and what I'm going to ask you to try to do is when the thoughts arise over the next minute or two, as you're focusing on the sensations of the breath, gently place that thought on a shelf, so to speak, in your mind. And you can come back to it later, but just gently take it set it aside, and then refocus on the sensation of the breathing. So I expect that you will be distracted, and here's a way of just gently setting that aside for just now and bringing your attention back to the breath. Breathing in, breathing out. Sensation arising on the in-breath. Sensation of falling on the out-breath. Thoughts come up, set them gently on the shelf, back to the breath. Another in-breath. 
breathe out. Now staying in this uh, same state of mind and body, continue breathing of course we're gonna focus now on the other senses as well one more in breath and then out breath as you breathe in next I'd like you to Allow on the out breath, allow your body to just sink into the chair. Feel the weight of your body, gravity just settling your body down into the chair or if you're lying down on the bed, on a couch. Just feel your body go heavy and limp. So breathing in and breathing out, let your body go. Feel the natural weight of your body, the pull of gravity. Do that one more time, one more breath cycle. Breathing in, and let your body go. Feel the tug of gravity as you relax. Next, I'd like you to start at the top of your head, down to your toes, and scan your body uh, during the next breath cycle. Scan your body for the temperature that you notice You'll notice a difference between, for example, exposed skin will oftentimes feel a different temperature than down inside your clothing. And different parts of your body may be warm versus cooler. And so just notice tracking your temperature as you breathe in and breathe out. Do that for one more breath cycle again. Just scan your body for your the temperature across your body. Noticing any differences. Let's breathe in again and breathe out, just focusing one more time just on the sensation of breathing. Breathe in, rising, breathe out, falling. The next breath cycle, I want, to, want you to try to do something that's very subtle to detect. That is, see if you can detect your heartbeat inside your chest as you're breathing. So if you can just focus your attention on your pulse from inside your chest without, for now, without putting your hand on your chest. See if you can feel your heartbeat from within. Breathing in and breathing out. And this time I invite you to put your hand on your chest and notice your heartbeat underneath your hand on, on this next breath cycle.
Now lower your attention uh, down to your stomach area, to your abdomen, <clears throat> and notice your digestive system right now. Notice if you're hungry, maybe you're full, if you have any discomfort, for example, if you have uh, indigestion, just notice what's going on down in your gastrointestinal area. Sometimes the, uh, it can be tense down there and we're not aware of it. So just breathing in, breathing out, notice your tummy. Okay, just a couple of more now. Again, scanning from head to toe. This time I'd like you to focus in on your joints and your muscles. Notice any tension or uh, notice any aches, if there's any discomfort. Just scan your body. It may be that you don't feel any stress or don't feel any tension in your body and just enjoy noticing that. So as you breathe in and breathe out, scan your body from head to toe noticing your skeletal mus muscle system. Any aches, any pains, or maybe the absence of them. Another breath cycle doing just that focus. Okay, and then the final one is to notice what you hear right now. If you're in a relatively quiet environment, I'm here with Franz and with Austin, but it's pretty doggone quiet here. Just appreciate the quiet, and if you have sounds off in the distance, if you notice anything, just make a note of those. Just focus on what you hear right now, including appreciating whatever relative quiet you may be uh, experiencing. Breathing in, breathing out. Notice what you hear. One more breath cycle, just noticing sounds, silence. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. We're finished with the exercise. Thank you for joining me uh, in, in the two parts that we experienced here together, mindfulness of the breath and uh, scanning our, our body for, for noticing our senses. So, uh, sometimes it's just called sensory practice. So let me ask a question coming out of this exercise. How did it go for you? Okay. I lead uh, uh, local uh, groups uh, that I, I lead. I lead oftentimes, lead off with, with a meditation like this. And I'll often uh, ask, how did it go in terms of noticing your heartbeat? And about half the people in any group I lead can feel their heartbeat. Um, and many people will comment that's not something they've ever done before. They don't notice it. Uh, typically, but they're able to. And then the other half, it, it's uh, it's subtle enough that it may take some practice. 
another piece that will come up oftentimes in groups that I facilitate is the experience of sitting with a group of 10 or 20 members and just being quiet together is an unusual experience for many people. We don't really experience that much calm with others uh, typically and it's a, uh, uh, a novel experience and a real treasure for, for some people, it certainly is for me. So let me ask you a question, or maybe it's on your mind. Why would this self-calming be important in recovery? Why does it matter that we, that we uh, try something like this, especially if it's new to you? I was thinking, I was thinking earlier today, I, I went to a concert this last Saturday. Um, I was sharing this with Austin. I, I, uh, I went to a concert of an artist that I followed for about 45 years, and I was remembering, <laughs> I didn't think of this when I saw him last week up at UCLA, but the first time that I went to see, uh, the, he's a guitarist from England, John McLaughlin, the first time that I went to see him was the first time I ever experienced meditation. <laughs> he opened up with his uh, group uh, called the Mahavishnu Orchestra. He opened up the concert with several minutes of silence. <laughs> and I was realizing I was age 18 at the time. That was the first time I ever uh, practiced meditation. I'd never experienced that before. And it was in a large arena. It was at Long Beach <coughs> Arena. So there's, uh, I don't know, maybe 10,000 people there. And to be in an arena with people quiet <laughs> right before a very loud concert was pretty amazing to an 18-year-old boy. But that kicked, off, that kicked off meditation for me. That was my first experience of it. So what, what, what's up with self-calming? What's up with meditation? What's up with mindfulness? We introduced this in a prior presentation. I'm going to review it because I feel like it's important. And I want to tie it into uh, the book I just showed you by uh, Stan uh, Block and Guy Duplessis, the Mind-Body Workbook for Addiction, where uh, they discuss that there are two brain systems, and they're basing this on uh, brain scan research in the last uh, two decades. It's been made possible with uh, functional MRIs that can study the brain. Um, uh, without having to do invasive surgery. You can actually observe the brain in activity. There are the two brain systems, and the first one is referred to as the executive mode network, or simply executive network. And this uh, is very much connected to our frontal cortex, the, or sometimes called the neocortex. It's the part of our brain that operates as the CEO, as the executive. It's the part of our brain that is able to make long-term decisions, uh, makes uh, moral judgments, um, um, connects with others with empathy, uh, and is also very much related to our ability to soothe ourselves. It's an executive that wants to take good care of our brains and our bodies. So that's the one brain system, but there's another brain system, and this is referred to as the default mode network. And the default mode network is more connected to brain structures on the interior of our brain, sometimes referred to as the midbrain. This is uh, the location, for example, of the emotional center of our brain, sometimes referred to as the limbic system. And uh, there's, there's overlap or, or correlation between all of these different parts and the default mode network. Now, why is it called the default mode network? turns out that our brains naturally default towards vigilance, scanning the environment, looking for problems, 
uh, underneath that is the evolutionary drive to look f uh, to to sort out possible danger for the sake of survival, and our brains naturally default to this. So in order to develop some other way of being than in constant hypervigilant awareness, we have to exercise the executive network, the former network, and meditation, it turns out, is one of the most powerful ways of doing that. Uh, let me introduce you next to my uh, supervisor. Uh, several years ago, I worked with her for a few years, Dr. Bonnie Badenoch. Uh, Bonnie is a dear soul who is steeped in both uh, uh, what is referred to as interpersonal neurobiology, looking at the neuroscience of relationships, and also deeply committed to integrating mindfulness into psychotherapy and into her work with individuals as well as couples and families. Uh, uh, Bonnie's a dear soul. I have a great deal of love and admiration uh, for Bonnie. And Bonnie, in our supervision, would talk about it this way. She would say that what we want to do is to activate and strengthen soothing fibers was her term soothing fibers that go from the executive mode network in the front part of the brain down into the interior part of the brain or the default mode network and those soothing fibers actually set the default mode network at peace or at rest you can read more about this in bonnie's book she's written three books she has a brand new book that's just come out but her first book that uh, that i know discusses this is being a brainwise therapist and uh, it's very readable i recommend it to you if you're interested in looking at at what uh, brain science is saying about relationships and even about therapy and counseling it's well worth reading and uh, in there she discusses this idea of creating um, uh, through mindfulness, creating the capacity to soothe our, uh, our, our, uh, our stressed minds and bodies. Uh, the, the hopeful or the good news in this is that our brains are very uh, flexible. The, term, the technical term for this is neuroplasticity. Bonnie discusses this in her book, as do Stan and Guy in their book. And uh, neuroplasticity just has to do with the flexibility of the brain. And there's a, there's a principle, uh, a, a phrase that's tied into neuroplasticity, and that is that what fires together, wires together. And basically what this is saying is that neurons uh, communicate to each other in our brain. These are nerve cells in the brain. And that if we can, we can and we can train our brains, we can actually change our brains by, by practice such as mindfulness, where if, if we fire in the sense of calming our brain, if we fire neurons, we begin to create new neuronal pathways that are actually calming and we don't have to be meditating to receive the benefits of having trained our brains to be in a more steady, calm state. So what fires together wires together, the idea being is that if we're typically in default mode network, uh, activated by uh, by stress and then how that is carried in our bodies and our psyches, we can actually retrain our, our bodies and our brains to uh, experience calm amidst even outer stress. And that's one of the, the, the uh, really inspiring good news items about mindfulness practice. 
I, I mentioned earlier that, that this is one of the, the key practices, mindfulness is one of the key practices for stress regulation or self-regulation. There's research to indicate, again, uh, via uh, brain scan technology, that with even uh, six weeks of practice uh, at mindfulness, there's actually a statistically sig significant observation of thickening of the frontal cortex, of the cerebral cortex which is amazing to imagine. Can you imagine what it's like if you've, if, if, when you think of people that have practiced some form of meditation or yoga for uh, years uh, of, of what you're doing is you're basically, I had a good friend refer to it as your building brain, your building brain. And um, that's a good thing. I wanna tie this into to, uh, recovery. Um, if stress is the number one trigger for relapse, in terms of our addictions, whether to substance or behaviors, and there's a lot of indication that that's the truth, that stress is the number one trigger for relapse. With mindfulness, I can finally now do something to retrain my brain to manage stress, manage stress differently, and reduce stress specifically. And uh, uh, I think one of the values of, of, of practice like what we just talked about, I recommend, well, let me just talk about it personally for a second. In fact, I'll give you an example of it. I, uh, I, uh, I've had some long-term shoulder issues, I'll just talk about that, from uh, sports injuries and probably overuse as a drummer down through my life. And I, as it turned out, uh, um, earlier this week, I had to go in to get uh, an MRI, speaking of MRI, where you or you slide inside this container and uh, pictures are made of your, uh, in this case, my left shoulder. Um, and it's about a 20 minute procedure. And it's, uh, uh, they asked me before I get in the, inside, inside this tube, do I have claustrophobia? And I certainly could have claustrophobia, that's for sure. But I'll tell you what I did as I, as I was sliding inside the container and it's also very noisy. There's loud banging going on as this, uh, this uh, scan is done of my, my left shoulder is I, I did the practice we just, we just, uh, we just did. Um, I expanded to include some other meditations, including I did some forgiveness work while I was inside the, the tube there. And uh, uh, what was amazing is not only was it calming, I actually, uh, it brought me near to sleep. I got so relaxed with the meditation. And so I'm talking about a very stressful environment as one example of it. And this practice um, uh, really served me. And so what I find is that I, I have quiet time set aside most every morning where I meditate, including this practice. But I find it really useful in the heat of the moment like that as well. So um, I recommend the practice. And really what you're doing is you're building what psychology calls an internal locus of control. And what, what we mean by that is that when there's a stressful circumstance in the outer world, in my case earlier this week, the MRI, is that to be able to practice something like mindfulness practice, mindfulness of the breath, uh, scanning my body for, uh, with sensory practice, it can actually help me to um, uh, uh, increase my sense of, of self-control um, even inside a very stressful circumstance. And so it's useful both in terms of the long-term, creating a, uh, a more restful steady state or baseline. It's also highly useful in the heat of the moment, such as my experience earlier this week. I want to pause right here to open up for questions, and I, I do know that uh, one individual submitted a question. 
before uh, before the presentation today. So I want to address that and also want to invite Austin if there are any more questions. I'm happy to address those as well. Okay. Okay, all righty. So th this is a question submitted by Angela. Thank you, Angela, for uh, 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 she viewed the previous uh, podcast in which I announced it would be talking about unstressing today. And she had this question, and so I'd like to ask it. I think it's pertinent uh, right, right where we are uh, in the presentation as well. Angela asks, do you see a difference between self-calming and distracting oneself? when the distraction is not an addiction. For example, she says, I watch a relaxing movie for self-calming. Thank you, Angel. I appreciate the question. I think it's a great question. And in the spirit of previous conversations uh, that we've had here on this podcast and elsewhere, uh, my answer will be a both-and answer, okay? <laughs> and, um, is that I'd like to look at... Uh, uh, what you're calling distractions, I'd like to look at the pros of it, the positives of that, as well as some cautions, uh, which I'll introduce in a minute too. I think for immediate relief uh, uh, of, of stress or distress, I think that distractions uh, make a lot of sense. And I, I, whether it's watching a relaxing movie, listening to music, going for a walk, there's lots of things that, that we can do to distract ourselves from painful emotion in the moment that serve immediate benefit. And I feel like there's great use to that. In an earlier presentation in this podcast series, I talked about one of my former colleagues um, in the university, Dr. Joseph Wolpe, who developed uh, uh, this, this concept in, in his uh, uh, kind of forming the basis of behavior therapy, uh, he called it reciprocal inhibition. And if I can create a relaxation response uh, by watching a movie in place of a stressed response, um, that it's impossible to be stressed and relaxed at the same time. And so anything that, that would serve as a distraction that would help to calm me is fair game. And I, I, I really uh, support that and I practice that myself as well. So, um, but you ask, is there a difference between self-calming and distracting my, uh, oneself? And I do, want to, uh, I do want to address that question as well, Angela, uh, is that uh, I think there's overlap for sure between the two. But uh, just that last comment I made about increasing internal locus of control is that with, with self-calming and the way that we're utilizing it here applied to mindfulness of the breath and sensory practice, we're actually training a response that's an interior response that doesn't require uh, doesn't require for me to go for a walk, doesn't require for me to uh, watch a movie, doesn't require for me to read a book, and it can very much serve in terms of developing what psychology calls self-efficacy. I can actually handle this myself with these skills, and so that's one piece I think in terms of building internal locus of control. I have another thought as well, Angela, and that is for longer-term emotional growth. I think that there can be real value in learning how to hold painful feelings, for example, memories or even trauma. Uh, 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 with support from others for sure, but learn how to be able to tolerate certain emotions. And these self-calming skills, strategies like mindfulness, can be very useful for learning how to hold that with the goal of transforming, for example, depressed feelings or anxious feelings over time to be able to transform those by being able to tolerate them. And mindfulness can help us learn how to tolerate them in a... Um, 
uh, a future podcast, I want to address what's referred to as insight practice, which is a specific kind of meditation. It's out of the mindfulness tradition that helps us just be with thoughts, feelings, sensations, observing them without, without trying to, to uh, fade them away or distract ourselves or, uh, or hide, hide them, hide them, hide ourselves from them. And so uh, in that spirit, I think that there's a lot of value to self-calming strategies beyond simply distracting ourselves. So I think it's really a both-and response. One way that I think about it is, it's like the distinction between uh, passive entertainment, such as my watching a movie. I like to watch movies. I like to watch music videos. I, I love watching my favorite musicians on YouTube, for example. And, uh, I'm, and I enjoy taking that in, but it's much more passive. I'm on the receiving end. And that's a very different experience than more active forms of entertainment. For example, I know that you're a dancer, Angela, and I'm a drummer. And for any of the more active things, I think that Austin is a hiker. <laughs> or maybe a bicyclist, I don't know. I, I think I've seen... Okay, all right, okay. Uh, these are much more active uh, forms of entertainment. And I think it's, I think it's perfectly... Uh, fine to have a balance of these, but if, if, we, uh, if we're not careful, we can develop almost only passive forms of entertainment. And uh, that's at great cost to ourselves in terms of actually developing new skills as well as uh, in the context of our talking about stress, developing new neuronal pathways to manage stress. And so a balance seems like it makes the best sense to me. One of the key theories for addressing depression is referred to as activation theory. It's about as common sense as psychology gets, and there's a lot of psychology that to my mind is pretty doggone common sense. Activation theory is just get up and do something. <laughs> it's one of the best ways to, to battle depressed uh, mood is to, is to activate ourselves. And I think that that's very much in the spirit of your question, Angela, about, about distracting ourselves. Um, um, it can also be very useful in anger management to find a way to distract ourselves, uh, just to be able to allow the body to settle down by distracting ourselves to where we can have a conversation without being aggressive, for example. So there's great value in distraction. And maybe there's overlap, but I'm also dif differentiating, I think, what we're talking about here in terms of self-regulation or self-calming. So continuing on then, um, I, I talked about, about uh, mindfulness practice in the context of self-calming or unstressing for the holidays. I want to suggest a couple of things for all of you who are viewing this. In preparation for these holidays, particularly if you have anticipate some stress around the holidays, I recommend that you uh, start your day with, with five minutes. I think I said it was seven and a half minutes of meditation, uh, just exactly what we talked about here. If you don't already practice something like this, I recommend that you, uh, for the next uh, several days, we'll call it the 12 days of Christmas, <laughs> 12 days of mindfulness around the holidays. I recommend that you try this uh, as a practice of kind of lowering the water level, so to speak, lowering uh, your baseline in terms of stress. I also recommend, as with my example from the MRI tube, I recommend that uh, as you're going through the day and stress arises, that you uh, just focus in for a couple minutes even on your breathing can be very useful. Another thing that I've done over the years, I love to speak in public, I love to teach. It's really a passion of mine and I always get nervous. I've never stopped getting nervous speaking in public. 
And so I oftentimes, before I stand up to teach a class or to speak before a group of people or come here to meet with Austin and Franz to do one of our podcasts, I'll oftentimes uh, just take a couple of minutes just to breathe, just to focus, is that uh, I mentioned reciprocal inhibition. It's impossible to, to calm, be, be calm and stressed at the same time. And so if I can move into a calmer state of mind by refocusing <clears throat> just on something as simple and as available as my breathing, uh, it helps to set me at peace. And so I wanna recommend that you do that. If we tie this into recovery, and we're gonna wind up, uh, wrap up here in just a few minutes. If we tie this into recovery, one of the ways I think about this, in committed recovery, the rich get richer. And what I mean by that is there's an adaptive spiral that's set in motion here, where we, as we build new brain capacities, new psychological, emotional capacities, for, for being with our, our feeling states and being able to calm ourselves under stress, we actually get better and better. It, it builds on itself, and I even think exponentially. I was talking with somebody recently about this that, in fact, it was in a recent post of mine, that's what it was, was, was uh, my awareness that, that when I started meditating, there was that first meditation with John McLaughlin all those years ago. And then I started meditating in earnest um, about a half a dozen years after that. I began practicing it regularly and have practiced some version of what we did here today off and on, more off, more on than off, let me put it that way, more on than off for sure, oftentimes multiple times a day, is that if I look at the last coming up on almost 40 years of meditation practice, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine who I'd be without that over these years. And so in terms of the rich getting richer, I feel like that I've built in uh, a, a kind of a go-to mechanism that as I mentioned is more reflexive now so that when I was sliding into the tube the other day at the, at the clinic, it didn't even occur to me uh, 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 not to meditate. It was just like I just moved into that state automatically. Stress equals opportunity to practice mindfulness of the breath. And so I did that. It becomes more automatic or reflexive, and I'm grateful for that. And I think if there's a, a, a key to unstressing for the holidays, um, it's, uh, I think it's summarized well in, in a coffee cup that I have sitting by the sink in my bathroom. I use it to, to I, I fill it with water to drink my vitamins every day. I've had this coffee cup for years. I got it with my daughter Amanda years ago, and uh, and it's it's hung in there through multiple moves. And uh, this is the picture of the coffee cup. You can see the word peace. Here's what the coffee cup says. I actually. Uh, pull it out occasionally, and I did this week. I just pull it out and read it because reading, the, reading this message is part of how I can unstress. It helps to remind me, and I like very much the message, so let me share it with you. The cup says this, peace. It does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. Rather, peace means to be in the midst of those things and still be calm in your heart. I love that message, and I think that that's really what we're talking about here, is that life has 10,000 stressors, <laughs> and the holidays have about 9,000 of those 10,000 stressors built into them. And if we can find a way to be calm in our hearts, 
through the holidays, through practice like what we've done today, uh, I think that, uh, that, that it will stand us in good stead. And I want to encourage and bless you to this practice over these next days. Uh, for those of us that are in recovery, I think it becomes a staple of our, of our, of our daily uh, recovery practice is to build in some version of what we're calling self-calming uh, behaviors here today or unstressing. I don't think that it's optional for anybody who's in recovery. And um, uh, as we've talked about before, most all of us have, if not addiction to a substance, most all of us have addiction to certain behaviors, and you can think of those behaviors in your own life. Everything from uh, difficulties around eating, uh, uh, to uh, uh, working too much, to all the list of the other behaviors uh, that uh, uh, enslave us. And so one of the, the, the most powerful means I have to addressing uh, 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 my addictions and reducing them or eliminating them is to find some way to manage stress. and I think that this is hopefully a practical step in that direction. I hope you'll find it useful. I encourage you, and I'd love to hear from you. Uh, uh, you can write me through Ask an Addiction Specialist. Uh, this video will be uh, uh, up uh, uh, following this presentation today, and you can write me on the Facebook group there. You can also go to the archive at the Beginnings Treatment Centers, and you'll find these videos. You can write me there, and I'll give you my email address again in just a moment where you can write me. I'd be very interested to know how the practice goes for you. I'd like to give you a, an advanced peek at next week's topic. Um, you'll remember last week we talked about attachment, attachment theory from psychology, which basically studies relationships. Uh, what attachment theory has to say about addiction, the relationship of addiction to our relationships, uh, or our attachments, as psychology refers to them, and reconciling when we've when we've harmed uh, another person in relationship. How do we how do we bridge that rupture and and reconnect with them? So that was our presentation last week. I want to take one aspect of what we talked about last week and focus on this next week. And the topic will be saying you're sorry. I want to go deeply into saying you're sorry. How best to do that. Uh, the subtitle might very well be How to Make Amends Effectively. For anybody who's in recovery, particularly in the 12-step traditions, you'll be well familiar with uh, uh, steps 8 and 9 that require our making amends for wrongs that we have done to others. It's a very central part of the healing of addiction as, as, as proposed within, within uh, recovery support groups. And so we'll be looking deeply at how to make the most effective amends possible. And I like it that it's right on the cusp of uh, the holiday season of Christmas and Hanukkah and New Year's because this oftentimes it gives us a chance to be together with friends and family. And maybe what we talk about next week will serve you in terms of providing some practical guidelines for how you might uh, make amends for wrongs that have been done that have never been uh, managed. I think it'll be very practical in terms of something that you can do in relationships, as we talked about last week, that uh, make reconciliation possible. I want to provide you more specific uh, guidelines, uh, much more detailed guidelines. So we'll have a whole presentation next week on how to say you're sorry, okay? For those of us in recovery, I think we all understand the, the, how key uh, this skill is in terms of being able to address wrongs that we've done as well as to uh, uh, manage resentments, to reduce resentments in our lives in order to ensure stable and lasting recovery. Let me make one more um, 
recommendation for you to, to, to go to my website. I mentioned it earlier. You're welcome to go to my website and write me. There's a, there's a place on my website where you can contact me, the very last tab you can contact me. You'll notice on the front page, on the front home uh, of my homepage uh, at this website, uh, www.drbobweathers.com, you'll notice uh, uh, this, this, uh, this new uh, CD that's just come out, The Freedom of Forgiveness. I think it'd make a wonderful Christmas gift to yourself. <laughs> really recommend that. I also uh, uh, would love for you to go to the site. It'll open, when you when you press on the tab, it will open into the full description of, of, of the, the, this uh, meditation CD, as well as uh, you'll see a, a video of my friend John Dupuy um, uh, uh, sharing about the video, as well as me talking about the experience I've had with the forgiveness practice. It's exactly what we practice here in, in uh, session number four. I do recommend that you go back to that that particular podcast, our fourth podcast, which was on self-compassion, where we introduced this this particular meditation, and it's exactly the same meditation as as is on the CD. The CD has the advantage of having uh, brainwave entrainment music in the background, which only enhances the meditative quality of the experience. It's pretty extraordinary what my dear friend Doug Prater was able to create musically. He composed a piece of music that goes behind the meditation. There's the long meditation, which is uh, with all the detailed information, and then I've shortened the meditation. Once you've practiced it once or twice with the extended instructions, you don't need those anymore, and the more condensed instructions then follow. Plus, Doug has included a uh, just a music track of his music that itself is a is is a, a wonderful. Um, uh, setting for your own meditative practice. And so I recommend you again to that resource. Hope that you may find it useful. I want to thank you again for joining me today. Uh, uh, I'd love to hear from you to, to hear how it goes uh, with your own unstressing over the next days leading up to the holidays. And I really hope that you'll join us next week as well as we look at uh, uh, making amends in, in a way that's the most effective in terms of bridging relationships. So blessings to you. Have a great week. Thanks again for joining us. Take care for now.